Today is Earth Day, an annual event originated by the environmentalist movement around 50 years ago to draw attention to environmental issues. To say that this movement has been hugely influential is an understatement. The Biden administration chose today to hold a global summit and to resolve to take bold action on climate change. With that as a backdrop, we're going to look at a new development within environmentalism. It's sometimes called humanistic environmentalism or environmental humanism, and it's gained prominence in the last five years. What's remarkable, remarkable about this is that it's strongly critical of mainstream environmentalism, particularly the apocalyptic claims we hear about the state of the world. Is this an antidote to the alarmism we hear so much about? Welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm Ilan Jerno. I'm joined today by my colleague, Keith Lockage. Hi, Keith. Hi, Ilan. Keith, uh, you've been thinking and writing and speaking about environmental issues for a long time, and I know you've been tracking this new development. I just want to share my first take on this, which is when we started talking about this issue, my reaction was, it sounds like a positive development. So I thought maybe we should start with, tell us a bit about what is environmental humanism, and then we can get into how you think about it, what you evaluate it. Yeah, I mean, well, and, and as to why, you know, it's interesting for us to talk about it, we, we, like everybody else, are very interested in environmental issues, the environmental movement, because it's so prominent in the culture. And Ayn Rand, I mean, we're at the Ayn Rand Institute, Ayn Rand, had a very distinctive perspective on environmentalism that she articulated 50 years ago. You know, she was watching the rise of what was then called the ecology movement and had, you know, a lot of critical things to say about it back then. And so, um, you know, I've written about environmentalism. Other people at ARI have written about these kinds of issues. And so we're, we're always kind of following what we try to follow what's going on in new developments. And you know, in the last like couple, I mean, over a couple of decades gradually, but I'd say in the last five years or so, you the, you've seen the real emergence of a of a I would what I would view as a new approach, a real a new trend here, and and it's articulated by a number of thinkers, but two in particular that we're we were going to highlight today are Steven Pinker. Um, in his book, Enlightenment Now, he has a chapter, chapter 10 is on the environment. And he talks about his, the way he thinks about environmental issues and so on. And uh, more recently, um, Michael Schellenberger, who is a longtime environmental activist, published a book called Apocalypse Never. Um, and the subtitle is, you know, why environmental alarmism hurts us all. So this is, these are, uh, they're, it, it's, they view themselves as environmentalists, but they're, but they're articulating a viewpoint that's strongly critical of the traditional or mainstream environmental movement. Um, and you know, these are thinkers who, they're not really aligned. Now, there's a long history of thinkers who've been criticizing the environmental movement. I mean, I, I mentioned Ayn Rand 50 years ago was doing this, and there's a, a group of other thinkers like this as well. What's interesting about this new development this sort of environmental humanism, if you want to call it that, is it's typically represented by people who are not people you would normally think of as part of the sort of anti-environmentalist movement. These are broadly speaking, these are left-leaning, you know, dem progressive Democrat voters, right? They view, and they often view themselves as environmentalists, but they have this very strong critique of traditional environmentalism. And in particular, 
what they're very critical of is the sort of apocalyptic doomsday uh, perspective that you get that really saturates our culture and dominates the media. And um, it creates a real climate of, of um, fear and you could even say hysteria. And um, associated with that is the advocacy of what I would view as very irrational and destructive policies in the name of fighting climate change. And we'll, we'll talk about all this um, in a moment, but um, you know, so, so just in the last five years, we're kind of seeing the emergence of this trend. And I think it's, I think it's a, a very positive development because they're so critical of these things that I think are their right to be critical of. So I noticed in reading about Schellenberger, as you mentioned, he was an environmental activist and he, in one of his articles, he lists all the things that would be uh, bona fides for, you know, he's definitely in that camp of he, uh, carrying the flag for environmental causes. He spent time in the Amazon. He spent time campaigning since a teenager. And I think um, Pinker is not quite the same intellectually or politically, but right. he definitely, I think, thinks of himself central left or, uh, in that sense. And, and that's part of what's striking about these people. They're really coming out from within, they, they view themselves as coming out from within this stream and critical yeah. of it. Now, maybe we should talk a bit about their criticisms because you, you characterize them as picking on things that should be criticized. So what are some of those things? Yeah, I mean, just to back up a bit on Schellenberger, I mean, he was, he viewed, he was someone who was, you know, campaigning for the kinds of actions, the policies that people are talking about that we need today, you know, to fight climate change. But he, he's, he's gone so far in the other direction that last year he sort of famously issued a, an apology for promoting climate alarmism. Um, he has a quote, if maybe we can get the quote up from, from Schellenberger. He says, on behalf of environmentalists everywhere, I'd like to formally apologize for the climate scare. We, you know, he calls it a climate scare we created over the last 30 years. Climate change is happening. It's just not the end of the world. It's not even our most serious environmental problem. Um, so, you know, I, this is feeding into what I think is, is um, positive about this is that there, there's a recognition of the um, of the ways in which the environmentalist movement exaggerates and overstates the risks that we face from climate change, um, and um, you know there there's I mean Schellenberger himself calls this there's a climate disinformation campaign, and in Pinker's book he's less critical of people on, on the issue of climate change, but he's critical of the mainstream environmental movement. He, he accuses the movement of promoting a sort of quasi-religious ideology is the term he uses. Um, so what these guys are trying to do is offer a different perspective on, um, on environmental issues, a different way to think about them and, and a criticism of the alarmism that we often see. And this isn't, I mean, we're, we're, we're referring to these two thinkers. It's not um, they aren't the first people to express this kind of view. You could you could look at someone like Bjorn Lomborg, who, you know, he published his book, The Skeptical Environmentalists, more than 20 years ago. Um, and there's a, there's a number of other figures who could kind of broadly fit into this uh, camp. Um, so I wouldn't say there's sort of a, a precisely defined philosophy and there's significant points of disagreement among them, but I think the, the, the commonality and what makes this what I think is sort of a new trend and something worth paying attention to is 
the, crit the, the strong criticism of the mainstream environmental movement for you know, distorting the facts, ignoring the truth, sounding apocalyptic scenarios uh, unjustifiably. Um, sorry, I'm having a little technical issue here. Keith, I want to come about, back to your point. About signed out of Google. <laughs> <laughs> I want to come back to your point that you brought out in connection with Pinker and his characterization of it as a quasi-religious ideology. Let's put a bookmark on that because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. But let's talk yeah, a bit more about some of the ways in which they're criticizing environmentalism for being alarmist or for, for um, claims that didn't come to pass. And I think someone, uh, I think there's a, there's a way in which these things get brushed aside when people talk about environmentalism. There's a kind of uh, present tense focus on this is the issue right now, never mind what was said before. So what were some of the things that people in the environmentalist movement were telling us in the last five plus decades. Yeah, I mean, this is so for people who who study the history of the environmentalist movement. Um, you know, you, what you see, and for people who study it from a critical perspective, you see a pattern over the decades of these of making these very grand, you know, apocalyptic predictions. And you know, ten years out, you know, the world is going to end, and then ten years out, the world doesn't end, and it's and this happens over and over again on issue after issue, and for the for you know, people within the environmentalist movement will just dismiss that pattern and say, oh, you know, it, it's it's um, they'll 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 evade the history and just try to circle around it. So one thing that's really good about about these new thinkers is that they're willing to recognize that this is a pattern. So, you know, one of the most famous examples of this is, is Paul Ehrlich in his 1968 book, The Population Bomb. And this is, you know, these apocalyptic predictions of massive worldwide starvation. You know, he said, and we could put this quote up, I mean, this is in 1968, he said, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 90s and 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death in spite of any crashed programs embarked upon now. And he predicted things like by 1980, you know, England would no longer exist. Everybody would have starved to death. And um, so, and these are supposedly grounded in a scientific perspective on population growth and the capabilities of food production. And it's just a, a, a complete nonsense, despite a doubling of world population over the, over the 50 year period since then, you know, um, rates of poverty and hunger have steadily declined. You know, in America, we're more concerned about the problem of obesity than, you know, any kind of risk about food production. So, so there are many thinkers who, who have been critical of Ehrlich and pointing this out in the past. What's, what's interesting and um, important about this new trend is you've got thinkers who, would, who you would think of as more traditionally aligned with that kind of perspective who are critical of. So, you know, in his book, Enlightenment Now, Pinker talks about this example of Ehrlich and his book and the predictions that didn't come to pass. And he says basically that the population bomb diffused itself. Um, another example that Pinker talks about is at this around the same time, there were predictions, and and you know, in a related, it's a related kind of issue, but predictions of just catastrophic resource depletion, 
you know, not only are we going to run out of food, but we're going to run out of all the critical elements and resources necessary to sustain our industrial civilization. Um, there was a famous study in, in uh, 1972, a book called The Limits to Growth came out that was based on early computer models trying to look at resource production and resource consumption and population growth. And they throw it all into this 1972 era computer and crunch the numbers and you get all these runaway catastrophes. And, you know, but, it, but it's, it's really, it's an example of the famous computer uh, slogan, garbage in, garbage out. So they make all these predictions, they predict these incredible catastrophic outcomes, and it just doesn't come to pass. Um, and again, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to put this quote up from Pinker on the screen, because I think it's, it's, um, it's unusual to see people criticizing the environmentalist movement um, in this way who, who would traditionally be more aligned with them. So Pinker says, when predictions of apocalyptic resource shortages repeatedly fail to come true, one, I, one has to include either that humanity has miraculously escaped from certain death again and again, like a Hollywood action hero, or that there's a flaw in the thinking that predicts apocalyptic resource shortages. The flaw has been pointed out many times. So he's acknowledging that there's a history of thinkers who've been pointing out these alarmist tendencies and in the, in the environmentalist movement and exposing the errors in their thinking, um, but who haven't you know, gotten the recognition they deserve, um, and and that that uh, the the problem is that there's a there's a there's a there's a intellectual premise that's held by the promoters of these apocalyptic scenarios that um, is 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 wrong and flawed, and and so you know it's it's striking that you've got and and Schellenberger recounts this history as well, the population bomb and the resource crises, and he's a, he's he's similarly critical. Um, so I, I think so. That's just a, it's a really positive development that that these kinds of thinkers are are uh, issuing these kinds of criticisms. One quick question: I I have this memory about Ehrlich that it wasn't only this is relevant to the the real world consequences if you take seriously these these apocalyptic claims. So I think it was Ehrlich or someone else who said, okay, we're, if we're running out of food then there has to be some way in which we reduce population. And what that is, that's euphemistic for, we're gonna, there has to be forced sterilization or some other uh, drastic steps to curtail or incentivize people not to have children. Uh, I mean, is, am I right in remembering? Is that Ehrlich's view of how to go about solving that pseudo problem? Yeah, and he said, um... I think the quote that I remember somewhere in the book, he says something like, and this will have to be done through compulsion if voluntary methods fail. It's just a chilling, chilling uh, perspective that we, we, we have this apocalyptic prediction. And on the basis of that, we're gonna enact these sort of totalitarian measures if people don't comply voluntarily. It's really, yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the, the, so the intellectual perspective underlying this. Um, so when Pinker talks about how um, there's a flaw in the thinking, you know, that's been pointed out many times. I think what he's referring to is there's a certain perspective that, that is sometimes referred to as Malthusianism, and this is a reference to Thomas Malthus, who was an 18th-century clergyman and British economist, 
1798, he published a book called An Essay on the Principle of Population. And this was the first articulation of this, the kind of view that Ehrlich was, was echoing in, in 1968. You know, basically just sort of on, on simple mathematical grounds, if you compare the way populations grow exponentially to um, you know, what was then understood about how something like agricultural production can increase sort of linearly, you know, this is just a mathematical inevitability that population growth is going to outstrip food production. And then, you know, what, what's the outcome? People, you know, mass starvation is the only thing that can happen. <clears throat> now, um, now, what Malthus failed to take into account and what his followers continue to fail to take into account is that food production doesn't grow arithmetically because of technological innovations. And this is exactly what happened in the 1970s while Ehrlich's book was at the printing press, you know, the, there's a famous scientist named Norman Borlaug who was enacting a revolution in agriculture um, that, that was able to expand food production, you know, like by enormous amounts. And I mean, uh, Ehrlich at one point basically was saying that India, you basically have to write it off because it's just, you know, it's got too big a population, not enough food production, there's not going to be enough around the world, so we're just going to have to let them all starve. And India was one of the places that Borlaug went with his innovations, you know, and it's, and I mean, it, and, and it became self-sufficient, uh, you know, over the course of a couple of decades. Um, so, so the, it's, it's, it's the, it's this sort of erroneous thinking, this sort of erroneous Malthusian thinking, um, that is behind a lot of these ideas. And Schellenberger talks about this as well um, and, and acknowledges. So again, this is somebody who has spent 30 years as an environmentalist promoting these kinds of apocalyptic viewpoints. And now his perspective is that he says the ideology behind environmental alarmism, Malthusianism, has been repeatedly debunked for over 200 years. Um, you know, so. Um, yeah, so it's 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 a yeah, yeah go ahead. I was going to say it, it, what I'm hearing is that this is not we made a rounding error or somebody put in uh, got the, the their sums wrong. It's not an accident that they're wrong. It's there's something driving this whole perspective. And I mean, I, I wanted to press on this a bit because one of the things that when we, we as soon as you talk, open the topic of environmentalism. I think the context that is activated for many people is, well, this is just science. What, well, how, what are you talking about? This is all settled. We know what the science is. Don't, you know, don't be one of those anti-science people. And the reality from you know, what you're describing, what I've read and what we're hearing from some of these uh, critics of environmentalism is it's actually much more of a framework, an intellectual framework, an ideology, to, uh, sort of a, a political intellectual and uh, uh, endeavor rather than it's all science and we're just making some scientific errors. Like don't make these sorts of predictions of apocalypse as Ehrlich does about population or Malthus. And it's, oh yeah, we it's just, we got some, some, you know, something went wrong in the lab or the computer glitched. This is, there's something driving it. It's an intellectual endeavor. It's not a scientific issue. Yeah, I wanna, and I wanna pull that out a little later, but before we get there, I just want to drive that point home because you see it, I mean, with a, in particular with a issue that's of urgent currency today, which is the whole push for green energy. I mean, you, 
you know, you, you mentioned that, that Biden apparently today is announcing what he, his plans, something like 50% below 2005 carbon emissions by 2030 or something like that, I think is what it's supposed to be. Um, and, what, and, and the way we're supposed to get there is with a massive expansion of solar and wind energy, right? Um, so you talk about uh, how there's a total, that, that, that this isn't a rounding error. There's a, there's a way in which this is just divorced from reality. And I think uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about the push for green energy, because I think you really see that here. The, the physical realities in terms of how the, in terms of how you are able to extract energy from solar energy and wind energy um, and what is required to, ha <clears throat> to have you know, the, the quantities of energy that we require on our electric grids and in our cars and airplanes and so on. And, and um, you know, the, there's, just a t there's just such a disconnect between what's being proposed as something that you know, we urgently have to do and what the actual results will be it's really quite frightening just how disconnected from reality all this is. This is something I've written about, and we'll put a link to my article on green energy uh, towards the end of the of the um, at the end of the podcast. But um, one data point that Pinker and Schellenberger, in particular, are point out, and I think they're right to point out, um, that I think shows how disconnected from reality all of this is, is that. So what we're told today is that climate change is gonna be a world ending catastrophe. And the only way to solve it is to stop emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Now, um, so the question is how are we gonna meet, for example, our electricity needs? You know, you've got a billion people in the world today who still don't even have access to electricity. How are we going to, uh, you know, how are we, and, and it's not like electricity is dispensable. I mean, we saw what happened in Texas when the power went out for like a week. You know, it was, it was a major crisis. Um, we've all suffered through uh, electricity shortages. We're in California and we, you know, we, this happens periodically here and it's, it's, it, it's a shutdown to your, to your ability to live your life. So, this, so it's, a, it's a critical need. So at the same time, we're told that we've got to stop all these, we've got to stop our carbon emissions. But the question is, how are we going to supply energy? Um, and the, the thing that is so striking is the opposition to nuclear energy that you see from the environmentalist movement. Nuclear power is the, is the one form of generating electricity. It's the safest form. It's, it's um, once the plants are up and running, it's relatively inexpensive. It provides stable, reliable baseload power for decades. Um, and, and it's essentially carbon free. I mean, once plants are built and running, the process of generating electricity from nuclear fission, um, you know, doesn't produce any carbon emissions. You're not burning anything, right? It's a totally different form of releasing energy. And yet that's not, that's not uh, the major part of the solution. And instead, what's, what, we're, what we're told is the solution is forms of energy that are incredibly uh, dilute. So you've got to build these huge installations over massive uh, acres of land in order to collect the energy from the sun and the wind, um, which are intermittent, 
you know, the, you know, I mean, obviously the sun doesn't shine all the time, wind doesn't blow all the time. So there, so there, you don't have a stable, reliable flow of energy that you can control and that you can um, regulate so that you can match supply with demand. So, you know, the idea that it's the most urgent thing in the world to cut off our carbon emissions, but nuclear is off the picture as a solution. To me, that is what gives the lie so much to the idea that, uh, that the what the environmentalist movement that the claims that they're making the policies that they're advocating are are grounded in reality and what's again you know what we're talking about is uh why am i looking so positively at these environmental humanists um they recognize this 100 percent and are aghast at the idea that there's so much opposition to nuclear schellenberger is sort of this is kind of his thing now. He's become like a, a one of the leading promoters of nuclear energy, um, you know, which is not something you'd expect from somebody who spent thirty years as as an environmentalist. Yeah, it takes, I think, both courage and some significant amount of intellectual honesty to look back at what you've been doing and realize this is wrong, and I need to. Uh, own that it's wrong and then try to correct it, which seems like what, what he's doing by speaking out. So that's to his yeah. credit. I wanted to just comment, um, thanks to some of the folks watching us, we, we received a number of uh, Super Chat donations and questions. We'll, we'll uh, try to get some questions in in a little while. Uh, I, there's a couple more topics, Keith, I, I thought we should get into. So we've heard a bit about what these environmental humanists, or the, uh, particularly Schallenberger and Pinker, what they get right or what's good in their critique. Um, and you mentioned earlier as well that, that some of, they're not the first people to criticize environmentalism. So I think it's, it's worth just stepping back a bit and saying, we're looking at them because they come out from within the movement, but there are other people who've been critical uh, of, I mean, and Ayn Rand in particular, so maybe you can tell us a bit about how she thinks of this. Yeah, I mean, so um, she, um, I think what she, some of the things that she noted more than 50 years ago and other thinkers have brought to light as well are some of the kinds of contradictions that I've just mentioned. So when they, they claim that they're in favor of, you know, uh, of, of um, certain environmental outcomes, but when you look at what the policies are that they actually advocate, they're actually destructive of human progress and destructive of, uh, of, of um, you know the kinds of activities that we need to be doing in order to promote human progress. So it's really it's an outlook that that um, prioritizes the the goal of leaving nature untouched over the goal of advancing human life. And um, so you you know so so this is really the what's fundamental about her critique is is what is their standard that they're using to um, evaluate what actions should be taken. Is it the is it the, what the the well-being of human beings, or is it something else? And she she um, you know if you if you look at her talk, the anti-industrial revolution. Again, we'll link to that at the end of the podcast. You can see how she lays out her argument, and and but ultimately, what she comes down to is a recognition that what we're dealing with here is not, as you said earlier, this is not something that's sort of grounded in scientific facts, uh, grounded in you know, real world observations that are, that are demanding that we look at things in this way. 
it's really a, it's really, there's a, there are certain philosophical premises underlying it. Um, and um, I think, so Pinker and Schellenberger, I think are good about recognizing this as well, that, that part of what's problematic about the mainstream environmentalist movement is there's an irrational ideological perspective that they're, they're clinging to in defiance of facts, science, and evidence. I just wanna, I wanna read another quote from Pinker because just to, just to highlight the extent to which they recognize the kind of almost religious character of, uh, of the, uh, the, this movement. So we could put this quote up. Um, so Pinker says, starting in the 1970s, the mainstream environmental movement latched onto a quasi-religious ideology, which can be found in the manifestos of activists as diverse as Al Gore, the Unabomber, and Pope Francis. Green ideology begins with an image of the earth as a pristine ingenue, which has been defiled by human rapacity. The harm, according to this narrative, has been inexorably worsened. The root cause is the enlightenment commitment to reason, science, and progress. Unless we repent our sins by degrowth, deindustrialization, and a rejection of the false gods of science, technology, and progress, humanity will face a ghastly reckoning in an environmental judgment day. So there's sort of a, an account of the environmentalist movement as holding to an almost religious kind of ideology. Um, and what I, think I, I, what I think I want to turn to in a minute is what is behind that? So it's one thing to recognize these features. Um, and, and you see this, I mean, you see this when, when somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, uh, you know, the world will not exist by 2030 if we don't act on climate change. That is not a, that is not a scientific uh, reality-based proclamation. That is a, that is a, you know, apocalyptic prophecy that, uh, is comes out of a out of an ideological perspective. Um, so, is it fair to say that yeah. it's 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 scaremongering in a in a in a fundamental sense in the same way that some of the prophecies and stories you hear in the Bible they're scaremongering. But I mean, the, a big part of the biblical view is that we're heading towards the end of days. Judgment day is obviously a biblical illusion in Pinker's quote. So there, and, and it's if you think about the origins of religion. The, the major monotheistic religions, it's primitive people being cowed into subservience in fear of a, of a god who has all power. And so it, there really is this common uh, desire to put people in their place and how dare you, you need to be afraid of what's coming and therefore move to act in a precipitous way. Um, so, you know, maybe we should pivot to so we've heard a bit about what's, what they get right and what's good in this critique. Uh, what do you think of it as a whole? Do you think, I mean, do you, how much did they, did they get anything wrong? Do you, what, do you disagree with them on certain things? Because like, I think that's really important to differentiate uh, and to indicate where there could be uh, disagreement. Yeah, I mean, so, so I think that it's one thing to kind of recognize this sort of quasi-religious character of environmentalism, but it, that, that raises a whole question of, if, if, it, if it is irrational in this way, why is it still so dominant in the culture? Why does it maintain such a hold on people's belief? If it's really true, I mean, if it's really true that there's this decades long pattern of defying the facts, 
defy, you know, ignoring all the evidence of human progress and flourishing that Pinker documents in his book and that we see, you know, in, in the data, um, and all these this history of catastrophic predictions that repeatedly fail to come to pass. Why is it then? Why do people continue to buy into these apocalyptic pronouncements? I think that's a real question. I don't think we get a satisfactory answer um, from these thinkers, and so. That's a way in which I think their critique of environmentalism is, in, is incomplete. That's the way I would put it. It's not that they 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 don't have a full answer to that question, um, and I think you need a full answer to that question to really understand what's going on in the culture today. So you know that that's what we could talk about now. Um, yeah. So how how do you think of it? Because that's the question I wanted to talk. I mean, I, when we were talking about putting this podcast together, one of the things that motivated me was this question of how did this movement persist? How does, it, how does it have such a hold on people? And particularly in light of what you've described about the, the so-called population bomb that didn't happen and the, the resources that were supposed to be scared. I remember just it was less than 20 years ago, we were expected to run out of oil. And now we have this fracking technology that has made oil. And just, we don't have that problem anymore because it's been solved in, in a fundamental way. So. With that, and, and well, how do you just just on that what, point? Yeah. Just yeah. on that point, I remember reading. Uh, I remember reading some reviews. So, like, there was one environmentalist writer who was pushing this. Uh, we're running out of oil. We're running out of oil. It's a crisis. And and once once the evidence came in that this is so far, it like the, so far from the truth that it's just crazy. Like the next day, it was a pivot, and it's like no. I never said we're running out of oil. The problem is we have too much oil and we're burning it and we're causing climate change. <laughs> you know, it's the same writer. Um, so anyway, yeah, so, okay. So, so the question is what's, why, why, why does it continue to have this hold? And I, I think that the, um, the place to look for the answer to this is in a place that people wouldn't necessarily normally expect to look. And it is in the, it's in the field of morality. I think it's, Fundamentally, what it comes down to is the moral perspectives that dominate our culture. One of the things that's distinctive about Ayn Rand's philosophy and Ayn Rand's perspective is that is, is the way in which she's a moral revolutionary, which is something that's quite rare in the history of ideas. You know, there's lots of intellectual revolutions that have happened throughout history, the scientific revolution, where people are willing to, you know, completely reorient our view no it's not you know it's not that the sun goes around the earth the earth goes around the sun right so there's there's there have been periods where people have issued like fundamental challenges to the received wisdom but when it comes to morality almost nobody has 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 issued a fundamental challenge to the basic moral principles that have dominated western culture for 2000 years and ayn rand is is looking at the way we think about morality and saying there's fundamental things that are wrong with it. So, you know, the dominant, the moral perspective that dominates everybody's thinking today is, in, is essentially it's, it's equating morality with altruism. You know, what it means to be a good person is to be selfless and to sacrifice for the sake of others. And what it means, the essence of evil is self-interest, selfishness, right? Um, now, what's revolutionary about Rand's approach is she's looking at these concepts and she's saying that the way we've conceptualized these things 
is mistaken in a fundamental way. When you look at the concept of selfishness, what, what we mean by that is you know, concern for one's own interests, but we include in that also the idea that it also means that you dis have a disregard for other people, um, a disregard for um, you know, the consequences of your actions, it's, it's, it's short range, narrow self-interest and the rest of the world be damned. And it's, the, it's this image of somebody who will trample over corpses to get what they want. And so the question that she asks is, why you've got these two elements, being concerned with your own interest and trampling on other people to allegedly serve that interest. Why do those things go together? Why are we packaging these two pieces, these two different ideas together? Because in effect, what it amounts to is you're taking, you know, like a, a super productive person like a Steve Jobs, and you're saying he's basically equivalent to a criminal, like you know Al Capone or somebody like that, right? They both were acting for their own self-interest, right? Um, and her view is no, this is crazy. This is you're you're you've created uh, you've misconceptualized the whole idea of of self-interest. And the same thing goes with the concept of altruism. We we, um, when we, when we talk about being altruistic, what do people associate that with? It's, well, it means kindness, you know, goodwill, being, you know, being nice to others, returning the shopping carts, right? <laughs> Holding the door open for people. Um, but at the same time, but it also, that it, it also includes the idea of actual sacrifice of, of holding other people's, uh, you know, putting other people above yourself and, making actual sacrifices, you know, actually harming yourself in the name of helping other people. Um, and so again, it's a package deal. And um, the, 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 the true essence of, of, of sacrifice is giving up values, you know, not for any kind of benefit, but for the sake of giving it up. So anyway, she's, so, she has a radical perspective on the way we think about morality. And um, part of what I wanna argue here is that it, the, the conventional way that we think about these moral concepts that dominates our culture, I think explains why people are so susceptible to uh, the apocalyptic predictions and the claims that we need to do it. Um, so I can say a little bit more about that in a minute, but did you wanna- Yeah, you, you, yeah. yeah dig into that because what you're, I, I can see some of what you're getting at. I think it's worth really fleshing it out and making it concrete. So you give the example of the way people think of being altruistic is, oh, you're the kind of person who holds doors open and puts the shopping cart back, or you know, if you're given too much change, you give it back. And so things, so very trivial sorts of things. How do people think about, just say a bit more about how people think of selfishness, because that seems to map on to the way that the critique from the environmentalist movement is this part of what fuels it? Because I, I think there's something really yeah. important there. Yeah. So what is it? What is what is the environmentalist critique that we in we're since the industrial revolution? What have we been doing? We've been we've been going into nature and and reshaping it to serve our ends. You know, we we go out and we extract resources so that we can make stuff so that we can consume them, right? Um, and so the the the, the the environmentalist critique is basically what it comes down to is the idea that 
you know, we're, we're brought up thinking that, that selfishness and the profit motive is, has this other element of being destructive, of you know, being unconcerned with others, being unconcerned with long-range consequences. So, you know, if, if when we think of when in our culture, the way we conventionally think about the selfish person is it's somebody who's short-sighted, um, has no concern for the long range, unconcerned with consequences, you know. Um, and so when we're told that, uh, so the, when we're told that um, we, we've been engaging in these profit-seeking productive activities for decades after decade, you know, and that, and that scientists are, are showing that there are uh, destructive consequences of these actions. People are willing to believe them, even if, even if people have been making these kinds of predictions uh, year after year and they continually fail to come true, it's, we still find it plausible. We still, we still, it still rings true for us that there have to be these catastrophic outcomes because that's what happens when people are selfish, right? It's, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of narrative about, um, we, we believe that there have to be negative consequences to selfish actions because of the way we've misconceptualized the idea of selfishness. Um, so, you know, it, it's, and, and, the, 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 you know, the, the consequence of selfishness is, uh, this is how it feeds into this kind of religious character. Our, the, um, the actions that we take to advance our lives in pursuit of our selfish profit-seeking ways, this represents a form of original sin. You know, and so they, it's, it's got to be the case. So like, I think people have the idea that it's got to be the case that this is going to come back to bite us. Um, and so, you know, these apocalyptic predictions don't seem so crazy when this is the perspective that you have. And it's the same way, I mean, it's the same way that, that the religious view of Judgment Day came to be accepted. People, if you convince people that by nature they're evil and they're sinners, you know, and they've come to believe that, uh, the idea that there's some kind of divine retribution waiting for them at the end, you know, seems plausible. And I think it's exactly the same kind of mindset that, that happens here. And do you think that this connects with the, the disregard for the fact that environmentalist claims of apocalypse have failed repeatedly? Because in religion, this happens too. There, there are prophecies, oh, where the rapture's coming any day now, get ready, pack your bags. It doesn't happen for 2,000 plus years since the story began. And every time that's pushed as well, oh, wait, there's another explanation. There's going to be something else. And, and yeah, it's, because, I mean, because that's it's a, just happen. a very crude example of it. Yeah, it's got to happen. Yeah. It's been told. And it's a punishment, so therefore it has to happen because we're we're in a position of having done something wrong. Uh, so, do you think that kind of connects with the same sort of way of thinking of things? I think so because I mean, one thing that is distinctive about Ayn Rand's perspective on morality is that she her view is that people are people are really moved and driven by their moral premises more so than a lot of people think that it morality has a kind of causal power in that way. It motivates us to act. It, it helps to guide 
are thinking about the world and what's right and wrong. And, but, but um, uh, it's, it's really important to people's self-esteem to view themselves as kind of being on the right side of history. And, and this is what I think feeds into, there's a certain moral, like you see this in the environmentalist movement, there's a certain moral righteousness about their cause. You know, we, it's, in effect, they're doing God's work, right? Um, and, and, and so if, if, uh, if you can convince people that by driving their cars and turning on their lights and living their lives, they're somehow committing this grave sin against nature, you know, you've then you've got all the psychological mechanisms of fear and guilt working for you to convince people to buy into this ideology. I think that's exactly what's going on here. So a quick thanks to the, all of you who are sending questions. We're going to turn to those in just a moment. And thanks for the support on Zoom. We appreciate your uh, commitment to this channel and our, to our work on the podcast, New Ideal. Keith, I just, I, I wanted to bring up a one point. It's a bit of a sidebar, but I, you know, I've, this whole idea of how people conceptualize selfishness as a, as a, it's really a caricature of the reality. I mean, that's one way to put the point. And this is Ayn Rand's really seminal insight. One of the things that, we, that came up earlier about the scarcity of resources, and we talked a bit about how oil was supposedly going to just, we're going to extract all the oil and then we'll be done, we'll be dry. I, I've talked to people who work, one or two people who work in these fields, and I've read a bit about this. And it's, it's interesting because the reality of how they run their businesses is so different from the caricature. Because if you're running uh, uh, an oil field, you don't wait for it to run dry and then say, whoa, guess what just happened? I think part of running that as an enterprise is to think long-term like, okay, well, we're at this, this is where we are now. Is there another way to get more out of this? Should we start looking for other fields? And this whole idea of resources other than oil running out, it's, well, part of what's interesting and then Pinker makes this point to his credit, but I think it's a, it's a point that Julian Simon really uh, popularizes yeah. that People's knowledge grows. It's, it's, the, it's the power of the human mind. This is Ayn Rand's fundamental insights. The power of the human mind that helps us to figure out how to use these resources in the first place. And if they become scarce or too expensive to be economically viable, we look for something new and we find it and we create some new alternatives. We're not wedded to this particular resource. So to me, that's that underlines both the caricature of what self-interest is, that it's short-term, it's disregard of consequences, but also more deeply, I think, the disregard for the role of the human mind in thinking about life and thinking about how to solve these problems. Uh, and, yeah. and it's interesting because some of it has to be that there's no awareness of how these businesses are run and what it looks like to operate uh, in this space. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, but and it's part of the, this, misconceptualization and this caricature that we that I think a lot of people just don't have a good sense of just how much creative rational deep thinking goes into running these kinds of businesses um, and uh, I mean this is something that you get from Ayn Rand's novel Atlas Shrugged is a picture of what what it looks what what true productive creative business people look like and then in contrast to that she shows the opposite as well with the the people who are just out for a quick buck and who are, who are going to be cronies with the government what what do they look like and there's a fundamental difference that's the fundamental difference and they're not they shouldn't be both be lumped together as 
under this caricature of selfishness. Um, the other thing is on, on the issue of energy, since you brought that up, I mean, there, the um, innovations are happening all the time. And, and it's not going to be the, it's not just the case that, uh, you know, when we start to reach a level where oil uh, starts to become scarce, then we need to start to innovate. These energy transitions are happening all the time. Um, you know, we moved from, you know, mankind sort of moved from burning biofuels like, like, you know, just wood and animal dung and this sort of thing to moving into coal, moving into oil, moving into natural gas. Then there's the advent of nuclear, like, and all these things happen. So, so it's not that the resource has to become depleted for these changes to happen. These are better forms of energy um, in different ways. Uh, and, and they happen as a result of technological progress, you know, and then event, you know, so at some point nuclear fission will be supplanted by nuclear fusion. And then who knows what'll come next? My son was saying, you know, maybe we'll have antimatter energy generation or something, <laughs> you know, that's science fiction. But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's the deeper point. Um, Why don't we take a couple of questions, Keith, because I, I want to bring in sure. the audience. One of them uh, goes to your point. So you were really positive on nuclear energy. You presented it as this is, if you were really concerned about human life, this is what you would be uh, seeking to expand, not contract the, the development of nuclear power. I mean, one, I think, reasonable concern, which the question is bringing up is, well, what happens to nuclear waste? Is that not itself a concern? Uh, can you say something about the safety of how it would be stored? Because it doesn't go away. Like you can't, you can't just make it go away. So what, what would be yeah. done with that, given the concerns? So there's a, so this is one of the things, I mean, I, I excuse me. Um, I actually recommend looking at Pinker's book and Schellenberger's book and lots of other things because they actually go into a lot of these issues in great detail to their credit. Um, and one of the things that Pinker says is, um, you know, with, with some issues, the more you learn about them, the more concerned you become. With nuclear energy, it's exactly the opposite. The more people actually learn about the facts about nuclear energy, the less concerned they become. Because all of these issues that environmentalists have been pushing on for years, you know, the, the, are, are there risks associated with it? Are we going to run out of nuclear fuel? Um, you know, what about safety concerns? Nuclear is, is like, is literally these, one of the safest ways of generating electricity, you know, in existence. And, you know, I, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips, but if you look at, at, at the at people who, who study these things, the, you, you can take all of the nuclear waste that's been generated in whatever six decades or so that the United States has produced it, and and it it's a it it's a it fits into a tiny volume, so it's just it's just not an issue um, to store the store this kind of thing safely, um, and compared and and the problem is that when people look at these questions they don't um, they're not doing a rational cost-benefit analysis, because if you look at the risks associated with other ways of generating electricity, including solar and wind, you know, the risks from the storage of nuclear waste are so negligible compared to the risks associated with other forms of generating energy, it's just not even a, it shouldn't even be a question. Um, so but let me push, let me sort push of a bit because, because, yeah. because uh, yeah. But, 
but let me push a bit more because I think if we are on the premise of human life and safety, so we suppose, would you want to live next to the power plant in Japan at the time? Remember, I forget, it was 10 years ago. So it was a major earthquake and tsunami and the power plant there was damaged. I think there was a leak. Would, would you go live, would, if you lived there, would you be comfortable with that kind of scenario? I mean, the radiation levels that people were exposed to or are actually exposed to are less than you get, you know, living in, in certain places in Colorado that are high enough, you know, they're, they're, the, the, the number of people who've actually died from uh, nuclear accidents in the United States is zero. And in Japan, zero. People died from Chernobyl, but that was, you know, a Soviet managed power plant. So I wouldn't expect, you know, Soviet technology to have the same kind of safety standards that we have anywhere else. So, um, yeah, so uh, this is the thing. If you actually look into the facts about the history, you know, radiation concerns, all this sort of thing, um, I mean, we, there's a certain background level of radiation that our bodies are are exposed to all the time, from radon seeping up from the uh, from from the crust of the Earth, you know, to cosmic rays and you know just things in the that that we're surrounded by all the time. So, you know, it, it would actually be unhealthy for us to be in a zero radiation environment because our, our hum, humanity evolved in the environment that we're in, um, and often. You know the kinds of radiation levels that you hear about they, they don't make that comparison um, to just natural levels of radiation that were that were exposed. I saw one statistic somewhere that said that with the three mile island disaster in pennsylvania you're you're you would be you'd get have less risk from sleeping next to the you know the the uh, nuclear facility than you would from sleeping three feet away from your wife because the sort of natural radiation that a person emits is like higher than. <laughs> so it's just, yeah, it's, it's uh, once you sort of dig into the actual facts on this, it's just, it, it, it becomes insane that we're even questioning this. Um, so. so thanks to, uh, we're receiving quite a few super chat donations. We really appreciate your support. Let me bring in another question that ties into the main thrust of our conversation today about the way environmentalism has taken hold and, and the critiques and what the critiques get right and where they're limited. So the question is, uh, or is it, it's a supposition. So is it the case, or maybe it's the case that people find environmentalist claims plausible the same way people persist in believing that, quote, real socialism, unquote, is yet to be experienced. So th there's a parallel that question is raising there. What's your thought on yeah. that? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think it's exactly the same reason. Um, what drives uh, people's conviction that socialism is, is the right social system is the morality of altruism, because Capitalism is based on selfishness and the profit motive. Socialism is based on, you know, let's serve the common good. And so it's exactly the same misconceptualizations that we have about morality that leads us to think that socialism, well, you know, maybe there are ways in which it's impractical and it's hard to get it to work, but at least it's noble and it's the right thing to do. Whereas capitalism, we all know that's evil and selfish and, you know, the profit motive. So I think, um, 
So I think it's exactly the same issue. And in fact, I mean, Ayn Rand's perspective on environmentalism, which, it, so she, she articulates this in an article from also from 1970 called The Left Old and New. And um, her view is that there's a way in which the new left, which was which sort of emerged in the 1960s out of the old sort of socialist left, was uh, it, it emerged because people recognized, you know, at first they thought that socialism was both moral and practical. It was going to be the wave of the future. We're going to outstrip capitalism. The Soviet Union is this great experiment, and we're going to, you know, outproduce the West. And then, you know, the the reality of um, you know, production under under uh, collective ownership and all this stuff is just it, it became too apparent to the world by the end of World War II that that it was just that's just obviously false. That capitalism is a is a productive system and socialism isn't. And so, in effect, what happened was people gave up the goal of production. So it's so you know there's the uh, people talk about environmentalists as being uh, like a watermelon green on the outside and red on the inside and I think it's that kind of idea that it's not it's not just that there's an analogy to socialism there really is a fundamentally collectivist ideology underlying uh, the environmental philosophy so yeah I agree with that completely so Keith a couple of uh, questions from super chat I, maybe we can deal with them uh, at the same time uh, can you say anything about the difference? This is more of a scientific question. I don't know if it's within your field. Uh, can you talk about the differences between thorium reactors and nuclear and uranium reactors? And then the second one has to do with evolutionary humanism. So you want to take science one first? Yeah, I don't know enough about, about those to even say anything. Um, I'm not a nuclear physicist. My, my background is in relativistic astrophysics, not nuclear physics. So different kind of rocket science. So sorry, I can't. And then uh, the other question. I, although I, the I, other question. I will, huh? I will say this though, I, my understanding is that part of the, there's been relatively little, you know, innovation in the field of nuclear energy generation. And it's, and it's partly because of the regulatory environment that's come as a result of the environmentalist campaign against nuclear has been just so overwhelming that uh, you know, in most industrial fields, there's, there's you know, a lot of growth and innovation. Even once the field is, is established, there are, there's continual improvements and in innovations in safety and that sort of thing. Um, but you just don't see that happening in nuclear uh, because there's just no way these things could ever get approved and built. So I, I, if, the, if part of what's motivating this is that thorium reactors are a sort of newer and maybe safer technology in some way. Um, I think that, um, but I don't even know, like I, 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 I just wanna stress that I don't, I don't know anything about um, sure. that technology and so I can't comment anything on it. But, yeah. um, the other and question I, I put to you from the Super Chat is, I just wanted to say, maybe we should do come back to that and maybe, I don't know enough about evolutionary humanism, but it's, it would be interesting to do a, con a conversation about humanism as a phenomenon, because I think it, it occupies a, an interesting position in the landscape intellectually. These thinkers we've been talking about, Schallenberger and 
thinker think of themselves in some important way as humanists, I think. And yeah. there is a, a sort of intellectual ferment around that. So maybe we should put, put a well, pin in that and come back to maybe do a, what do you want to comment just say on that? Let me just say one thing about it, which is, you know, uh, Steven Pinker's, uh, the subtitle of his book is The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. So I'm in favor of reason, I'm in favor of science, I'm in favor of progress. The humanism part of it is his attempt to talk about moral issues. And this is exactly what we're, we were arguing today is incomplete and confused and, uh, and, and the, the not so good part of his thing. So I, I don't, so yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think what we need in the moral sphere is Ayn Rand's perspective on morality um, to, uh, you know, to round out the full case in defense of reason, science, and progress. So, so I was going to ask you for your final thought, but that seems like a fairly good encapsulation. Did you want to add to that? Yeah. No, I, that's right. I mean, so I think, so I think overall, I'm, I'm very positive on this, uh, you know, this development that these, in, these people who would broadly consider themselves aligned with environmentalism um, and can, you know, fall under this rubric of environmental humanism, but who are, but who are, are highly critical of the mainstream environmental movement for reasons that I think are really well-grounded. And then uh, the only thing I would say is that I think their criticism is incomplete for the reasons that we discussed. So uh, thank you to all of you for joining us and for your questions. We didn't get to all of them, but let me mention that as we always do, we collect them, we sometimes create new podcast topics out of the questions that you send us. And we are having a, uh, I hope you'll come to this, uh, an epic Q&A session on May 5th for our uh, live stream that day. We are collecting, we'll bring in some of the questions from today and previous events. And then you also are welcome to send us questions in advance. You can do that by email, newideal at einran.org and be, join us on May 5th for that. And you mentioned in uh, our conversation, Keith, Ayn Rand's uh, book, The Anti-Industrial Revolution. Maybe we can share that with people. Uh, what was the other? I think we we're going to mention as well your essays, uh, which people can find on New Ideal. So this is Ayn Rand's The Anti-Industrial Revolution. It's a, it's a really important book to read. And you can find some of Ayn Rand's commentary on environmentalism on our website as well. So uh, we'll, you can find that by Googling. Uh, what was the other thing you wanted to mention? Yeah, let's go through let's go through all the resources that we have here. So there's anti-industrial revolution. Sure. There's an article at the left, old and new. This is what I was talking about, her perspective on the transition from the old left to the new left. Um, I think the next one gives a link to um, I mentioned an article that I wrote about green energy. So that's something you could look up there. And then uh, I think there's some what's the next one that we have here? Um, we'll put all of these in the show notes for people listening uh, when, when we put it on our website, New Ideal. So why don't we uh, draw a line here and thank everyone for joining. Uh, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe to this YouTube channel. If that's where you're listening, like this video, leave us a comment. We read the comments. We want to hear what you have to say. If you're watching or listening on Facebook or, social, or Twitter, please like the video. It helps us get a larger audience. And uh, we are always interested in your comments and feedback. You can write to us, newideal at einran.org. And I think can I we just mention that next week. 
Oh yeah, we should do that before we wrap up. Two, yeah, two more things before we wrap up. Uh, today, uh, we're going to be moving the conversation to Clubhouse, which some of you may have heard of. It's an audio platform available on iOS. We'll be there at 6.30 p.m. Pacific uh, to carry on the conversation from uh, this podcast. So I hope you can join us there. And then the other thing I was going to mention is that our, our planned topic for next week's podcast is what to expect from America without God. And uh, Ben Baer and I will be discussing that topic uh, using a, 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 an article in The Atlantic as a launch pad for uh, what I think will be a really interesting uh, exploration of that issue. So thank you all for being with us today. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.